Um, I grew up in a church that was a lot about works, um, and not, not that it was a bad church, just really preached on that. And then the, the second church that was really significant in our lives um, really talked about how God does stuff through you. Like God gives you the gifts that you've been given. And I kind of came up with this idea that I, I'm kind of like a puppet that God kind of chooses to use and he pulls the strings. Um, and I actually even envied people who became Christians later in life because they at least knew what they, who they were before God was in their lives. Not that I wanted to ever doubt God. It was almost like I was challenging God and saying, I want to do something without you. And as you can imagine, uh, I fell flat on my face uh, many, many times over. The doubts that I've experienced for me served to strengthen my faith. They made me push a little harder into who is God and what is his plan for my life and what does it look like to follow him when things are really, really broken. If I'm to if I'm to relate with God at all, I either have to completely keep all his rules or they have to have already been kept for me. And that's what Jesus did. He made it possible for me to relate with God on the basis of his righteousness and not mine. I feel like sometimes um, we need proof as, as humans of God's truth before we can actually fully grasp it. I took time out to uh, really focus and um, really focus my time on, on reading the Word and getting back to knowing God as my personal Lord and Savior. And I was met with this overwhelming sense of love and peace. Um, you know, a couple years ago, um, I was diagnosed with, with colon cancer, and uh, that was something that really hit us hard, uh, really affected my relationship with God. You know, the relationship I had with Him just kind of took over. If you don't have God to shape your understanding of the world. Everything else around you will shape your understanding of the world, whether it's TV, movies, people around you that don't know God. I didn't have any understanding of what he wanted for me. I just had an understanding of what the world said I should do. The Lord just started working on me and making me realize that I was on this journey to know him better. And, and I don't know what he's got coming next, but I know that it's going to be better than what I had. And I'm going to trust him in that because his ways are better than my ways. I probably bought into the lies that um, God loved me based upon how well I was doing in life. So if I sinned, he loved me less. But if I was a good guy, if I was good and I didn't sin, then he loved me more. I'd probably say uh, the trial that has had the most effect on my life to really make me question God's presence is um, my, my health. I have uh, cystic fibrosis and um, while I am fairly healthy most of the time, um, as I get older, I tend to get sicker. It can really be a trial for me. I accepted Christ at 18, and um, really just knowing that He forgave me of all of my past sins and all the struggles that I had, and, and knowing that I don't have that pressure to perform, um, that I am human, um, but that He still loves me regardless of, of the sin that I have in my life. There have been times when I've questioned His presence, and then yet He shows me that He's been there all along the way, every step of the way, in you know, lots of little ways. So um, he redeemed me from my sins, present, past, future, um, by his blood. I'm freed from the wrath of God, from through the blood of Christ. I'm freed from um, the power of sin in, in my life. And um, someday I'll be freed from the presence of sin in my life when I see him face to face.
God's redemption has changed all of that for me because he doesn't relate to me on the basis of my performance. And that really frees me up to love other people genuinely. I'm like the walking image of redemption. For him to forgive me for everything that I've done, all the poor decisions that I made, all the, the different ways that I went about life to say, you're redeemed, I love you, you don't have anything to worry about, you're saved from my wrath because of what Jesus did on the cross is like amazing. Yes, 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 and a thousand times over, yes, to, to the testimonies that we heard. And to understand even further why I would echo that, um, we're going to dive into the book of Exodus today. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, simply, we, we ask today for you to, to use your word to help us understand you better. Lord, teach us from, from your word and to make known to us your ways. Help us to understand your grace and the mercy and the salvation that is found in your son, Jesus, alone. And we thank you in advance for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I say, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 1. And as you do, I have a question for you, a question that is coming uh, kind of stemming out of this video, a question that uh, is stemming from conversations that I have had over the years, a question that I've had and I've wrestled with within my own life. How, how can we take the Lord's Supper on a day like today? How can we take the Lord's Supper as a sign of remembrance, as a sign of victory, as a sign of celebration, and still struggle with our sin? And even saying that, the, the word struggle doesn't seem to do it justice. Because you're sitting there and you're saying to yourself, as I'm thinking in my mind of, I don't just struggle with my sin. I battle my sin. I'm constantly in a battle against sin. I'm constantly in this battle against flesh and blood. And sometimes it, it feels like it's all we can do is to hold our head above water. Like, I'm just trying to take a breath, Lord. That, that's all I'm doing, if, if I'm honest. And it's like I'm, I'm in that moment, and I'm like, I know how I'm supposed to live, quote-unquote how I'm supposed to live as a Christian, or how I'm supposed to live as a, Christ, a Christian. And at least we, we think we know, right? And then you have, you have legalism kind of coming through and traditions kind of seeping through and through every nook and cranny trying to make their way in and kind of diluting what it possibly means to, to, to look and to live as a Christian. And, and then we just look at our lives and we compare them to this person or that person and to the, what we think we ought to be like. And we're like, I'm just a mess. I, I, I am a, I'm a mess. And the last thing we feel like doing is celebrating a victory because we don't feel very victorious in and of ourselves. And then we come to a table, the Lord's table, and we even have those moments where it's like, again, I don't feel victorious. And if anything, I, I kind of feel hypocritical. I'm like, what? I can't do this. And if, you, if you've ever felt that way, if you feel that way now, Turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. 
as we continue our journey through this the story of the Bible, the, the chronicle of redemption that we have before us. In Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, all the descendants of Jacob, Jacob being Abraham's grandson, were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, as we looked at last week, and then Joseph died. And all his brothers and all that generation, they're all now dead. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they they set taskmasters out over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities of Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And so it was for 400 years. Just as was promised in Genesis chapter 15 as we looked at last week. And as the text says, this new Pharaoh was ruthless against the people of Israel. His brutality knew no bounds from the harshness of their slavery to the the ordering of every son who was born into an Israelite family to be cast into the Nile, to be thrown to their death in the waters of the Nile. This is government-mandated here, post-birth genocide that is taking place based solely upon gender and solely upon race in this moment. So if they were in this time period able to understand and know the gender of the baby like we know now, every single Hebrew baby boy would have been ordered by the government to have been aborted. This is a nightmare that is taking place. From the harshness of their slavery to the losing of their baby boys, this is a nightmare of an existence that is happening right here in this moment. And let us not be deceived in thinking that this does not still happen in places around the world, as it does. Yet in the midst of this nightmare, one boy from the tribe of Levi, Levi being a a brother of Joseph, a, a son of Jacob, has a family, and he begins to have descendants. And from that tribe of Levi, from the descendants of Levi, miraculously a a baby boy is come by the hand of God as his parents disobey the orders of the Pharaoh. They say, no, we're, we're not going to do what the Pharaoh says. We're going to trust in our Lord for the fate of our child. And so what do they do? They place him in the reed of the Nile. They place him in the reeds of the Nile, only to be found by Pharaoh's daughter. And you would think in that moment that it would be like, oh no, now he's going to die. Pharaoh's daughter is going to do what Pharaoh has commanded everybody to do and kill this Hebrew baby boy. But instead of killing him, what does Scripture teach us? That she has compassion upon him. 
even bringing him into their home. And instead, we, we see in this short story here, it brings him into the home, and she's, he's raised as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. She names him Moses because she brought him up out of the water. Now, after several years pass, we're, we're told the people of Israel begin to cry out to God for help. They're crying out to God to rescue them from slavery, crying out to God to rescue from them from their bondage, to rescue them from this nightmare that they're living. And Scripture tells us that God hears their groaning. God hears their prayers. And he remembered the covenant that he had made with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. And this is when Moses comes back into the picture, back on the scene. The Levite child who was miraculously saved by God is now being called on by God to deliver the Israelites from their oppression. He's saying, God is telling Moses now to tell the Israelites in chapter 6, verse 6, as we're about to read. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from the slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh. He's revealing his personal name to them here in Exodus. He said, I am the Lord and I am going to do this. And if we look through these verses, we see four promises that he's making here. Four clearly. One, he's promising to rescue them from Egypt. Two, he's he's promising to give them freedom from their slavery, freedom from their bondage. Three, he said, I'm going to do this. Your redemption is going to come by by my divine power, by my divine hand. And as a result, the fourth promise that he's making to them is saying, and as a result, you're going to enter into a renewed relationship with me. You are my people. And you are going to be in a renewed, renewed relationship, not a nude relationship, a renewed relationship with me. It's okay to laugh in church, folks. It's okay. And as Moses hearing this, what happens? He believes God. Moses believes God. And then what does he do? He goes back and, and he tells the people of Israel. He tells them everything that has just con- kind of transpired. But what happens with them? They're full of doubt. And they're full of doubt because of the broken spirit that they have. They're full of doubt because of the harshness of their slavery. They feel like this is going to be their lot in life. That they're just going to always be slaves. Like, we're crying out, we're groaning, we want to get out of this, but it doesn't seem like it's ever going to happen. And then Moses and his brother Aaron, they go before Pharaoh. And they tell Pharaoh what the Lord has told, told them. Let the people of Israel go. Let my people go. But what happens? God hardens Pharaoh's heart, doesn't he? But at the same time, God stays true to his word. As he proceeds to deliver the people of Israel, just as he had promised, by great acts of judgment. So from there, we begin to see a series of 10 plagues kind of begin to unfold, starting with the the Nile being turned to blood. And then that's followed by a plague of frogs and then a plague of gnats and and a plague of flies. I shared with the first service on this one. I was like, the flies. I don't like flies at a picnic, 
much, much, like, much less a plague of flies all over the place. Then you're talking about frogs, like gnats and blood in the water. I'm saying, go, get out of here. But, but still Pharaoh's heart was hardened to the word of God. He says, no, I'm not letting you go. So more plagues ensued, including the death of the Egyptian livestock, a, a plague of boils all over their bodies, hail falling from, from all over the land, a plague of locusts and a plague of darkness ensuing all over the land. But still, the answer is no. Still, Pharaoh's heart remains hardened by God. And that brings us to the tenth and final plague, where in Exodus 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 4, Moses says, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn in, of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. So what's being told is there, there's going to come a, a plague that is going to bring judgment through the death of the firstborn. This is what's going to happen. But even here, as we've seen throughout Scripture to this point, even in the midst of judgment, we see salvation coming forth as God provides a means of redemption, telling the people of Israel how the only means by which they may be saved, by the only means which they may be saved from this impending judgment that's coming. As we see in Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, the Lord Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in, in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, and shall, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. Its, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your, your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day 
shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a, as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And what we have here is the Lord giving instructions to Moses. So he will in turn go back and give instructions to the people of Israel on how they are to celebrate the Passover meal. So for one, he's telling Moses how this Passover is going to work. This is how this is going to function. This is how this is going to take place. This is what you're going to do during the Passover. But but notice at the same time what, what we have in verse 14. How God says, this day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Forever? Throughout generations? Keeping it like more than once? But this hasn't even happened yet right now. There's still slaves in Egypt as this is taking place. And, and God is talking about future generations. So, so what is this all about here? God wants them to realize something here. He wants us to realize something here. He wants us to realize that his promises are sure. That he and his promises are trustworthy. See, he wants them to count their victory here while they're still slaves in Egypt. He wants them to understand the third promise that was made in Exodus chapter 6 that we looked at just a few moments ago. He wants them to understand that their redemption is going to take place by the divine hand of God. Nothing else. He's telling them, I am trustworthy. I am sure this redemption is going to happen. And he's so confident with this that he's saying, okay, I want future generations to be celebrating this as well. This is going to happen. These future generations are going to celebrate a past victory that they were not there for, and they had nothing to do with, but they're going to celebrate it nonetheless for year after year after year. And that's true of we who are in Christ as well. And we're going to see how as we continue to unfold. But we claim the victory. We claim victory. We celebrate victory over sin, over death, even in the midst of our struggle, even in the midst of our battle, not on the basis of our faithfulness, but on the basis of the blood of the Lamb. Because even when we are faithless, He is faithful. And let us not forget that. See, you don't tell a parent. You don't tell a a parent whose child has been diagnosed with cancer just to have more faith and it's all going to be okay. You don't do that because you don't know that. We can't know that. They, They can have all the faith in the world and their child could still die. And then what? Then what? what? What do you tell a grieving parent then? You should have had more faith? No. Not at all. 
But now let's, let's bring it home even a little bit further to, to those of us in this room. And maybe that's home right there for you. Like you can't get any more home than that. But let's think of you, Christian brothers and sisters who are here this morning. It's, you love the Lord. You love the Lord, but you, being honest with yourself, you're saying, I'm battling with certain sins in my life. I'm battling with just the effects of sin in general in this world. I turn on the news and I, I feel it. I, I go to work, I feel it. I go home, I feel it. I, I'm by myself and I feel it. And you're striving after holiness. You want holiness. You desire holiness. But you're in that moment and you're, you're like, oh. so what do I do? Do I stand here today and just tell you have more faith and it'll all be okay? If I do that, I'm sending you home, one, more discouraged than you came in. And even on top of that, I'm sending you home with a false gospel. I'm sending you home with unbiblical untruths. I mean, can you imagine what it must have been like to be an Israelite the night uh, before the Passover took place? Think about that with me, if you will. Think about what it must have been like to be an Israelite the night before Passover takes place. They've witnessed the previous plagues. They've seen God's judgment begin to unfold. They've seen all of this happen. And you have one, one guy, he, he's, he's confident. He, he's like, God's got good aim. Like, he, he got the, the, the right livestock, and he, the hail fell right where it was supposed to. And he's got this. But then you got somebody else, and he's nervous and anxious, scared, having doubts all over the place, thinking, I'm a firstborn. What if this doesn't work? I'm a firstborn. My wife's a firstborn. I've got an oldest child, and then I've got other children. What happens to them? Who's going to care for them? And they go to bed that night. Both having put blood over the doorpost. Both of them put the blood over the doorpost. Both of them go to bed. One, he sleeps fine. He's confident. He's good. God's got this. The other, nervous wreck. (laughs) Anxious. Back and forth. All over the place. Who's saved? Who's saved? the one who took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. But Jeremy, they both did. Yes. Yes. They both did. They both took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. See, it's the object of our faith, not the quality of our faith that brings us the victory. It's the object, not the quality, that brings us the victory. Which means our victory, the victory we celebrate when we come to the Lord's table, cannot be measured by our current circumstances, our current emotions. Our victory is not won or lost based upon our works, upon our merit. Our our victory is not won or lost based upon our level of faith. The child doesn't live or die by the earnestness of or the quality of their parents' faith. Our victory, the Israelites' victory, is dependent upon one thing and one thing alone, the blood of the Lamb.
the blood of the Lamb. So there is only one distinction. There's only one distinction here in the Exodus that determines who lives and who dies. It's not gender. It's not race. It's one thing. Is there blood on the doorpost or not? Is there blood on the doorpost or not? Because here's what we have taking place. In every home in Egypt that night, there either was someone or multiple someone's dead, or there was a dead lamb. Or there was a dead lamb. Meaning those who were saved were those who took shelter under a substitute. They took shelter under the blood of the lamb. And if you took shelter under the blood of the lamb, death passed over you. You were saved. You were passed over from the judgment that you deserved to receive. By God's grace, through faith in the promises of God. You took shelter by faith under the blood of the Lamb. It took faith to put the blood up there. It took faith to kill the Lamb. It took faith to do those things. You took shelter and you were saved. But can you imagine the chaos of the next morning? Can you imagine the chaos in the middle of a night? Because we're talking about incomprehensible devastation and suffering here. We're talking about the entire land of Egypt being littered with bodies of men, women, children, livestock. We're talking the death of magnitude we can't even begin to comprehend, nor should we want to be able to comprehend this. Grief and wailing extending from every single home in Egypt, from every home that did not take refuge under the blood of the Lamb. As Exodus 12.30 tells us, And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. There was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. Just get out of here. (laughs) And with, with that, the people of Israel were free from their 400 years of bondage that we saw in Genesis chapter 15. But here's the question that's crying out, demanding an answer. How does the sacrifice of an unblemished lamb exempt someone from God's judgment. How does that begin to make sense? And to get our answer, we're going to turn to the Gospel of Mark, where we're going to look at what happens when Jesus and his disciples sit down to celebrate the Passover meal together. So turn with me to Mark chapter 14, where on the first day of the unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead to prepare the meal for them to eat. And that evening, as they gathered together, they began to partake of the meal. They began to gather together, partake of the meal, the meal that included four points, where the presider of the meal, kind of the head of the meal, holding a glass of wine, got up, and he would begin to explain the meaning of the feast. And these four glasses represented the four promises that we looked at earlier. And from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, 
is God, he's telling them, they're, they're remembering God's promises, one, to, to rescue them from Egypt. They're remembering the freedom that they received from their slavery, from their bondage. Three, they're remembering God had promised and he did do it. He delivered them by his divine hand. That's how it was taking place. And they're remembering this. Fourth, they're remembering that their deliverance has now brought them into a renewed relationship with God. Now, the third cup, the one representing God's redemption that he brought by his divine hand, uh, this one came at a point in the meal when the presider would, would be blessing the elements of the bread, the herbs, and the lamb. And so at this point, by explaining their meaning, he would say, so, so for example, he would say, he would hold out the bread and say, this is the bread of my affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. This is the bread of our affliction, which their fathers ate in the wilderness. And in looking at Mark 14, it's important to remember that Jesus is the presider of this particular Passover meal. And this is what happens when Jesus raises up the third cup in Mark 14, verse 22. And as they were eating, he took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day, that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now try to imagine this moment if you can. Imagine the astonishment of the disciples. While blessing the elements and explaining the symbolism, Jesus departs from the script that has been told generation after generation after generation since the first Passover. This is all they've ever heard all their entire life. Every year when they have taken the Passover, they've heard the same script, the same thing over and over and over again. And in this moment, Jesus says, this is my body. He just changed the script. If I'm sitting there in that moment, my first question is, What is this all about? What is he talking about? This is my body. Has Jesus lost his mind? (laughs) Like, this sounds cannibalistic here. Like, what is this? But it's anything but. It's anything but. As Jesus is telling them what's about to happen on the cross. This is the night before. And he's telling them this is the what's about to to happen. Jesus is saying, this is the bread of my affliction. This is the bread of my suffering. This is it. I'm going to lead the ultimate exodus. I'm going to lead the ultimate deliverance from your bondage to sin. I'm going to do this. See, what Jesus is doing is he's establishing a new covenant with his people between God and and his people. And the basis of this new covenant is his blood. And by holding up the cup and the wine, and he's saying, this is my body, and this is my blood, Jesus is saying that all the earlier deliverances that have happened, all of them, all the earlier sacrifices, all the lambs that were sacrificed on that first Passover, all the lambs that have been sacrificed at subsequent Passovers, all the sacrifices that have ever taken place, he is 
they are all of them are pointing to him. Every single last one of them. He is the one that John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. This is him. This is what he's telling the disciples in this moment. So just as the first Passover was observed the night before God redeemed, brought redemption to the Israelites by the sacrificial blood of the Lamb through the Passover, this Passover meal was celebrated the night before God redeemed the world by the sacrifice of His Son on the cross. And so when we come to the table, we who are in Christ, when we come to the table, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're gathering in remembrance of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. And we're celebrating the victory that was won at the cross. We're celebrating that victory, the victory that freed us from our bondage to sin. See, the Passover in Exodus teaches us two things that we're going to look at. It teaches a whole lot more than two things. But two things that we're going to look at just to kind of briefly close out. One, our victory over sin is determined by one thing. Our standing with God is determined by one thing, the blood of the Lamb. So you're here this morning. And you feel unworthy, hypocritical, no victory. Like I, you're trying, you, can't, you just can't. But you, you believe in Christ. You're taking refuge under the, the blood. But you're like the guy just nervous. Like I don't, ah. You're determined by one thing, the blood of the Lamb. It's the question that we must ask ourselves this morning. Are we, are you taking refuge under the blood of the Lamb? That still leads us to the question we started with this morning. How can we take the Lord's Supper as a sign of remembrance, victory, celebration, and then still be struggling, still battling with our sin? How? How? By remembering that the assurance of our salvation is based only in what Christ accomplished at the cross and nothing that we ourselves can do or will ever be able to do. So does this mean, Jeremy, that we continue to sin so that grace may abound? In the words of the Apostle Paul, by no means. By no means. Will we battle sin? Yes, and we will for the rest of our lives, and we must battle it with everything that we have within us. We must latch on to brothers and sisters in Christ, put up barriers to help us avoid certain temptations. We must do everything we can to overcome, but understand that the victory will not be on our power. The victory was won over 2,000 years ago at Calvary. The victory was won at the cross of Christ. And let us take shelter under the blood of the Lamb. Because it is then, and only then, we are victorious. As we read in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And if you today have taken shelter under the blood of the Lamb, you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your only means of salvation. You are resting in the shed blood of Jesus Christ alone. We invite you to come to the table. We can invite you to come to the table and to celebrate. To remember what he has done. To, to celebrate the victory that we have in Christ. To remember that our, our sins are paid in full by Christ. But if you haven't, if you haven't taken shelter under the blood of the Lamb, we ask you to refrain from the table. Do not take, partake of this meal in an unworthy manner by taking it as an unbeliever. Do not take it and eat and drink judgment upon yourself. These elements do not save you. They're pointing us to the ones, to the one who does. We're remembering what Christ did. We're celebrating a, a victory as a family of believers. But if you have not received Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have not submitted to, to him, you're not taking shelter under the blood of the Lamb, I invite you to do so today. I invite you to do so because everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to the table, Lord, I pray we do so as believers who are not trusting in our flesh, but trusting in your finished work. That we're coming in celebration. We're coming in victory. We're coming rejoicing in, in what you have done and in, in bringing us from the exodus, from the bondage of our sin. You have delivered us from our slavery. And we are slaves to sin no more. Lord, help us to, to realize that. Help us to continue to, to overcome the things that bind us, Lord, and, and to continue to seek you in every step of the way. And Lord, for those here today who do not know you as, as Lord and Savior, I pray that today you will give them faith, that you will soften their hearts, and Lord, that you will bring them unto yourself. 
Lord, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, in this time where you're at, take time to prepare yourself to come to the table. And again, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you're welcome to come to this table to celebrate what the Lord has done in your life, in the lives of those who believe. And when you feel that you're ready, you come and you can take from one of these stations. You can come and, and partake of these, and they're going to be cup juice and a cup of the bread. They're both together right there. You can take one apart and have them right there. But you come as you feel led, and then as we kind of begin to conclude that, then our, our praise team will lead us in, in singing uh, songs of celebration as we reflect upon these gospel truths. Let's prepare our hearts now to receive these elements.